I'm curious, how many of you would love to have a list? So that, uh, I already knew the answer for you, because uh, you love lists. But I, I'm just curious, would you love a list so that you could spot a mature Christian? How would you like to know if you are a mature Christian? Would you like to have one of those kind of books that shows you clearly what a mature Christian looks like? Well, I'm glad you do, even though none of you raised your hand. So we have one of those books in the Bible. Great book of wisdom. The book of James, which comes right after Hebrews here, shows us here, right, by the way, if you're wondering who James is, look at the very first verse. We see that James describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. He gives greetings. As far as we know, by the way, which James is this? I I believe it is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's interesting that he calls himself a servant of his half-brother. He didn't always believe that, by the way. But he's writing to these Christians who are dispersed. There's persecution going on. And they're all over the Roman Empire, basically. And they needed to hear these words of, What is a mature Christian? How do you spot a mature Christian? Well, number one, the first chapter tells us that a mature Christian is patient in testing. By the way, in the weeks to come, we'll, we'll dig in deep here. So today's just kind of an overview it's just general, uh, so we'll, we'll just allow Scripture to speak for itself pretty much today, but we'll, we'll dig in deep in weeks to come. But we see that a mature Christian is one, when the trials hit you, you are patient. If you look at verse 2 of chapter 1, look what it says. You are commanded, by the way, this is imperative here, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So how is the Christian able to have joy in the midst of troubles? How is that even possible? Well, James gives you the answer through the whole chapter as he points you to God. The first way he points you to God is he says, we can be sure of God's purpose. God doesn't do anything by accident. It's all a part of his purpose in your life. So look what he says here. Because he says, verse 3, for you know... You should know this, my friends. You should know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's nothing that God wants you to have anyway. So God has a purpose in your testing that you go through. So your experiences, whatever they are, are are not happening to you by accident. They have a purpose. Praise God. We have a loving Heavenly Father who is controlling this world. Some people look at the world and think, oh no, it's, it's out of control, it's dark, it's terrible. There's a lot of evil. Yeah, there is a lot of evil. But He's still in control of this world and He has a purpose behind all the events that take place. And so Christians should expect trials to come. Just plan on it, <laughs> Right? You say, why? Because notice, James there says, he doesn't say if the testing comes in your life. James says, when the testing comes into your life, this is what you do. When. So what is God's purpose in trials? 
Basically, it's this, my friends. It is the perfection of Christian character. In other words, uh, the Bible puts it this way. He, God is molding you into the image of Jesus Christ. He wants his children to grow up. <laughs> Just like parents want their children to grow up. We don't want them to stay babies their whole life and suck on a milk bottle and speak gibberish, goo-goo-ga-ga. We like to have a real conversation with our children. God wants his children to be mature, and maturity is developed in the laboratory of life. And so knowing that God has a purpose helps us then to yield to him. Nothing in your life happens by accident. Number two... Here's another way that will help you to be patient in testing, is that you can be sure of God's goodness. Not only does God have a purpose, but He is always good. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Interesting passage. Many people seem to have this idea that because God is good, he shouldn't allow so-called bad things to come into your life, or he shouldn't allow you to suffer or to to be tempted. God wants his children to grow up, and one way that, that you can mature is by going through trials and temptations. And so in this particular passage here, I hope you notice that James is emphasizing here the goodness of God, and he's warning Christians about rebelling against God when the testing and the trials come into your life. Don't rebel. See those as God's good gifts. Because notice verse 17, every good gift. Where does it come from? It's coming from above, from the Father. And that includes even temptations in your life and those trials and the sufferings we go through. So he makes a very careful distinction, by the way. We'll dig deeper into this. But there, there is a distinction between trials and temptations. See, God sends trials into our life to bring out the best in us. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know how many of you did this this morning. Did, how many of you had tea? I'm curious. You have, right? And how many of you used hot water? Hot water is really helpful in the tea bag, right? It helps to bring out all the goodness out of that tea bag. What's what's inside it? I mean, you try using cold water; that doesn't work so well, does it? But the hot water hurts, right? It's it's kind of like trials and testings and temptations in a way, but it does bring out the goodness in you. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. So there's a distinction. But what Satan does, though, is he he will send temptations to bring out the worst in us. 
The other thing to take note of here is James reminds these believers who are dispersed that God gives only good gifts. Therefore, Christians, what's the proper response? Don't complain when trials come into your life. But rather, we should be swift to hear the Bible and to trust what God says and then to obey it. And that's kind of what he's getting into this next section here because notice number three, a a third thing we need to believe that will help us to be patient in testing is that we can be sure of God's word. You can be sure of God's word. Look at verse 21. 21, same chapter, chapter 1. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, if believers are going to then receive the Word of God and and to gain strength from it as you go through trials, then we must pull out the weeds. Right? If you have a garden, I'm hoping you're pulling out weeds, because if you don't, they take over rather quickly, don't they? So that you say, well, what weeds are we talking about here? Well, verse 21 talks about the rampant wickedness in our life. You have to pull that out or mortify it, kill it. So the soil of our heart must be then prepared to receive the seed of the word. And if we have unconfessed sin in our hearts and bitterness against God because of those trials in our life, the testing that God is doing, then you can't actually receive the word and be blessed by it. And then in chapter 2, we, uh, we see another aspect of what, what it means to be a mature Christian. What does it look like to be a mature Christian? Well, chapter 2 tells us a mature Christian practices the truth. You practice the truth. It's interesting, the book of Galatians Chapter 5 talks about the Christian life there described as faith working through love. Those two aspects of faith are really, really important, and and they're discussed for us here in chapter 2. By the way, uh, Galatians helps us to understand, it's kind of a companion passage here to chapter 2, but the basic idea is that true faith is not dead. It, It reveals itself in love and works, both love and works. And so the problem is, too many people, they they get a head knowledge, so to speak, about Jesus and Christ, but it doesn't really translate into a heart belief. See, they they can know that Jesus, you know, the whole calendar revolves around Jesus, and people can know that, yeah, yeah, he came and he died and rose again, and 
you, you can know those sort of things and it not save you. They have faith in the facts of historic Christianity, but not saving faith in Christ personally. So, with, with, since that's reality, here's a question, friends. How do you know if you are a genuine Christian? How do you know if your spouse is a genuine Christian? How do you know if your son is a genuine Christian? How do you know if your father and your brother is a genuine Christian? Two ways. Number one. This text here in chapter 2 tells us that faith is proved by love. It is proved by love. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. My friend, a sinner is saved by faith. And notice, the Bible continually shows us it is not by our good works... But true saving faith does lead to good works. I, I hope you understand the difference. One is the fruit, one, the other one's the foundation. Vastly different. So if you think of the fruit in the roots of a tree, right? So if you believe that the good works save you, you're, you're thinking that's the root of the tree. But if you're thinking the results of your salvation, that's the fruit hanging on the tree. I hope that big difference. But being a Christian is not a matter of what we say with, just with our lips, it involves what you do with your life. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew, see, he, he said, you're to be a fruit inspector. You, you look for the evidence of salvation on the outside of you coming out from your heart. And there's a challenge right here in verse 18. Look at this. Chapter 2, verse 18. Look at the challenge. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That's a good challenge. Great challenge. So, faith is proved by love. See, we're not to just simply have faith. We're to, to, to practice it in our daily lives kind of jumping ahead of myself here but uh it's important that we we not believe in god in just you know a vague mystical sort of way but we must have a personal faith in jesus christ specifically the bible tells us who jesus is he came and he lived amongst us and you can't worship a different god but our faith is also proved by our works as we just read there um, no, sorry, I didn't read verse 14. Uh, verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Rhetorical question. So a sinner is saved by faith, not by your good works, of course. And so that, that challenge of verse 18 is interesting, isn't it? You show me your faith by your works. Really, that's impossible to do you think about it because notice what the very next verse says there are creatures out there who have belief in god because verse 19 says you believe that god is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder but you know hopefully that the demons are not saved 
You're not going to see them in heaven. They have a dead faith, in other words. And so James goes, as he continues on in in chapter 2 here, he goes back to, to two illustrations from the Old Testament. We'll dig into these later. But he uses Abraham and Rahab, both in the lineage of Jesus, by the way. Interesting if you read about them. But James goes back to them as examples of true, genuine faith. Abraham showed his faith by attempting to offer his only son, his son, well, not his only son, but his son Isaac on the altar. The second example is Rahab. She showed her faith by going against her own city, the place where she lived, and, and helping Israel, who eventually defeated her own city. In verse 24, it summarizes the matter for us. Look at this. Chapter 2, 24 says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. There's the summary. It's it's summarizing this entire matter of chapter 2, that faith does not lead to works, or I, I should say, yes, a faith that doesn't lead to works is not saving faith. It's dead. It's dead. And it's sad to say there's a lot of people who profess with their lips and their mouth the Lord Jesus, but it's going to be like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, yeah, you call me Lord, Lord, and, and Jesus is going to tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. A lot of people like that, because they have dead faith. So, it's important that you have both of those to show that your faith is real. Do you have love, and do you have works? That's the fruit Okay, moving on, in chapter 3, we see that a mature Christian controls his tongue. Your tongue is powerful, this chapter shows us. Very, very powerful. And now look at the exhortation, chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Wow. As he goes on, he gives us illustrations to show just how powerful your tongue is. Yeah, it's little, but it is powerful. And so the first illustration he gives is the bit in the horse's mouth and the rudder of a ship. God says... Yeah, that's the way your tongue is. Just like the bed and the rudder, it is powerful to direct. It has the power to direct. Look at verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they, they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Keyword directs. So the... Your tongue has the power to direct. That's the idea. Sometimes we think that our words are not really that important. We we just throw them around kind of willy-nilly sometimes, not, not really engaging our brains sometimes. But God could use our words to even direct a soul to Jesus, to, to, to direct a soul out of their sin and into salvation. That's powerful. So just as a horse needs a guide and the rudder needs a pilot, your tongue needs God to control it. 
Number two is the tongue has power to destroy. Just as the illustration here is the fire. Fire is, is powerful, has the ability to destroy. Look at verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Wow. Verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So it has the power to destroy, just like fire. So notice it doesn't matter about necessarily about the size. For example, a little flame can set an entire forest on fire and burn millions of hectares down just from a single spark. Yes, the tongue is little, but can cause great destruction. God says your tongue is like that spark. And sometimes through the way we speak, we, we can speak in our, through lies, our gossip and our slander can be really destructive, particularly in churches. It can split churches. It can destroy churches just through your words. So take note, my friend. Use your words to edify, not to destroy. Number three, the tongue has power to delight. Just, just like the illustration here is of a water fountain or a tree. Look at verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9 says this, with with it, that is our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It is impossible for a fountain of water to produce something that is refreshing and salty at the same time. It's impossible, then, the idea here is that then it's impossible for your tongue to do that same thing. Uh, at the same time, you can't have the blessings and the cursings coming out. But how often we bless God when we pray to Him and we sing His praises and we're trying to edify somebody in the church, and, and, then, and then the next moment we're cursing someone. We get angry, we slander, and we gossip from the same tongue. So Christians must allow then the Holy Spirit to give forth the living waters, the refreshing waters of the Word through our tongues. But James gives us some application in regard to this in verses 13 to 18. Look at the application. Because he says, well then who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Good application. Now one of the key themes you're going to see here in the book of James is wisdom. Kind of like the New Testament equivalent of the book of Proverbs. A lot of practical living. What, what does a mature Christian look like that is actually directed by the Word of God? I think it's tragic when Christians lack practical wisdom to direct their lives. And they're making all, all kinds of sad mistakes. And, and, and tragedy happens in their life because they don't know what the book of James says. They could avoid a lot of pain. It's really tragic, isn't it, to see that happen. Far too many people have this idea that to be spiritual means you're impractical. Really? That's not what James is talking about. When the Holy Spirit guides us and he's actually using your mind, that, that is so good, so important. And James indicates there's actually two sources of wisdom, and, and that the believer needs to be discerning. It's foolish to not be. And the tongue of the believer can be filled with this true wisdom that is from above, or the false wisdom that is earthly from below. We'll look more at the application later on in the weeks to come. But number four, we also see here from chapter four that a mature Christian is a peacemaker. A peacemaker. Now, first of all, James 4 tells us some of the enemies that we face. In fact, you have three enemies. The first one is your flesh. Now, when the Bible talks about your flesh, it's not talking about your skin. Not talking about your epidermis. It's talking about your sin nature. Look at verse 1. This is your flesh mentioned here in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So notice the word passions there in your Bible. See, God says the passions are at work within you. In other words, they excite your flesh, create problems. That's where the problems come from, from within you. Now, please keep in mind here that the body itself is not sinful. Your your body's neutral, right? It's the fallen nature that you have that wants to control your body. Then things become sinful. I hope you can distinguish there. But in verse 2, James describes the believer's sinful actions. Notice, first of all, he says, they desire. The the desire leads to to killing and murdering because you want to obtain something. And then uh, they, they don't stop to pray about those desires. And when they... And when they do pray, notice verse 3 talks about these kinds of people pray selfishly so they can just increase their own pleasures. 
So the flesh can even encourage a person to pray. Wow. Selfish prayer can be encouraged by your sin nature. And of course, when a believer is at war with himself, like, the, like this passage is talking about, it's not likely that you can have peace with other people. Not, not very likely. So, so your first enemy mentioned here is the flesh, your flesh. Number two is the world. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. What is adultery? Because he just called us adulterous people. So what is adultery? Well, if you think of it in, in, a, in a human relationship, adultery is when you're married to someone and that other somebody chooses to love someone else who is not you. But in a spiritual sense, is that, which is what this is talking about, spiritual adultery is when you're married to Christ, and you choose to love someone other than Christ. That's spiritual adultery. And in this case, we're choosing to love the world, the cosmos, this, this system we live in, which includes all of its philosophies and values. Now, in Bible times, God called Israel's idolatry, or idolatry, he called it adultery. Why did he do that? Well, it's because the idols had robbed God of the people's devotion to him. They were loving something else. So how can Christians then have friendship with the world when you've been called out of the world? Well, actually, Jesus says you, you're, you're in the world, just don't be of it. Now, there's four dangerous steps here that are going to take a, a, a believer into a wrong relationship with the world. Again, we'll dig more into this later, but just take note, number one, that it's, it starts with friendship with the world. And then, number two, you become soiled or uh, affected by the world. And number three, then you, you gain this love with the world. And then number four is you become conformed to the world. But notice it starts with friendship. So you don't just, you don't become just like the world, just like, like that, right? Instantly, like a mist, a vapor. But it, it starts with friendship, and eventually you're, you're then talking and acting and thinking like the world. The result is that the compromising believer is then judged with the world. But there's a third enemy here. Verse 6 mentions the devil. Look at verse 6. Because it says, but he gives more grace. God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So there's your third enemy. You have three enemies if you're a Christian. So Christians who live for the world and the flesh, notice the temptation is you become proud. And the devil's going to take advantage of that particular situation because he wants you to be proud. Pride is one of his 
greatest tools in his toolbox. Maybe the greatest tool. And it's important we examine ourselves to see if any of these enemies are actually defeating us. Watch out. They're always after you. And so God gives us some exhortations we need to heed. And the first, before I point out the first one, notice James is going to turn us to three important warnings here. And he's going to call Christians to repent of our sins. Why does he do this? Well, unless individuals within a church are right with God, we will never have peace. That's how peace comes, is to... To know, to, to know the Prince of Peace and to live according to His standard. And the first thing he says is, beware of pride. Beware of pride. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. So where did the, the wars and the fightings originate? God says they originate in our pride. Pride, see, puts us at a distance from God. It puts up barriers between us and God. Pride defiles our hearts and even the very works that we do. So beware of pride. Number two, beware of criticism. Beware of your criticism. Don't be critical here. Verse 11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Hmm. So beware of your criticism here. See, when people are proud, they often are very quick to criticize other people. <laughs> very easy to point a finger at somebody and forget you actually have three others pointing right back at you, right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's typical. And so the conflicts among Christians here in, in James' day had their origin in their judging and speaking evil of one another. And the Bible teaches us we must have discernment, but this does not mean that, that you can just judge the motives of others. Can you see their heart? No, you can't. God says only He sees the heart. And so when we judge other Christians without the love and the mercy it's talking about here, we actually then become the lawgiver. Whoa, watch out. That's dangerous because God's the only lawgiver. He's not giving up that role. If all of us would devote ourselves to obeying the Bible and not investigating to see how everyone else is obeying it, <laughs> man, how our churches would be so different, how our lives and families would be so different, we'd have harmony and peace. Notice what James suggests in verse 12. This is interesting. Because verse 12, he says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? That's interesting. Because James suggests there that the only one who has the right here to judge is the one who also has the power to punish. That's only God. 
He's the only one who has that role and that position. So beware of criticism. And number three, beware of boasting. Beware of boasting. Look what God says in verse 13. Verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Notice what God says here. The humble know how to say those words, if the Lord wills, as they go about their lives and make their plans. It's not evil to make plans and to live your life. But these believers were boasting about their plans. They were anticipating their great successes. And they, they wanted to go into the big city, so to speak, and set up their businesses and, and come back wealthy. And so God warns them that this boasting is dangerous. To begin with, we know nothing about tomorrow. God is the only one who knows your tomorrow. And so therefore, the person who is boasting about tomorrow is doing what? You're actually claiming to be God. Of course, none of us are God. And I know, I, I know none of you want to claim to be God. So be careful about your boasting. And, and, and of course, verse 17 there summarizes, uh, sums up the chapter, and it is pointing out that we can sin by neglect as well as through our deliberate actions. See, it's not simply what you do, but also what we do not do that can be sinful. Did you notice verse 17? So my friend, take note. Since life is short, God says, we cannot afford to waste it. Do not wa- don't waste your life. Somebody wrote a book called that. And so we must make our lives count for Christ because he's coming back. He's coming to claim us. We need to be ready. Last of all, James tells us what a mature Christian looks like, and he says that a mature Christian lets God deal with his troubles. Yep, that's what he says. Chapter 5, you say, okay, so a mature Christian lets God deal with his troubles. How? How do you do that? You really want to know? I'm glad you asked. Because number one, God says, be patient when wronged. Any of you ever been wronged? Any of you... Someone ever gossiped about you or slandered you or stole your money or stole one of your possessions or said something evil toward you and about you and stabbed you in the back and or any a number of other things you could mention. See, in those days, a great divide existed between rich and poor. There was basically no middle class during Jesus' time. It's certainly not the way we, we know it today as we have a middle class. And so it appears the gospel appealed uh, mostly to the poor people. And the rich usually rejected Christ, and they're the ones who usually oppress the poor. Well, that's what it's saying here. So what is the problem? Well, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Come now, you rich, 
weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Wow. That's a problem. Maybe it's happened to you in some way, shape, or form. So... I'm glad God gives us a solution starting here in verse 7. Look at the solution. Because he says, if this is you, if you have been wronged in any way, how do I respond? Verse 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another's brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the capital J judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. My friends, be patient when you are wronged. I'm thankful for James because he encourages me. And he's encouraging these suffering Christians as well. Get your eyes on the promise of Christ coming. That is the solution to your problems. Looking to Jesus the author and finisher of your faith. And so notice the word patient here. Uh, Well, there's various ideas on what does that mean. Let me tell you that patient does not mean that you just sit around idly. You just sit and do nothing. That is not what it means to be patient. Now, you might do that at the GP for hours, maybe, or the emergency room. But that's not what this means. The word actually carries the idea of endurance. You're you're bearing your burdens. You're fighting the battles. And you're not going to give up until Jesus comes and takes you home. Now he used several illustrations to illustrate this lesson here. But notice the classic illustration. The classic example is Job. Was Job wronged? Wow, I mean, talk about being wronged. He lost, he was a very wealthy man, and he lost everything except his nagging wife. Thank you for leaving that behind for me. Yes. And so, so God had a wonderful purpose when he permitted Job to be tried. And so regardless of what trials may come, we know that God is love. And, and we know Romans 8, 28, right? God is working all things together for good for you, if, if you love God, that is. He's accomplishing His purposes in your life. It's important to remember that. We need to be patient 
when we're wronged. And the last thing that God says here, James, is be prayerful in trials. Be prayerful in trials. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? You want to raise your hand? Don't raise your hand. If this is you, God says, if you're suffering, he says, let him pray. You say, oh, I'm not suffering. Well, what if you're the next one? If anyone's cheerful, let him sing praise. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently, it may not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Wow. Well, that message goes against the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, doesn't it? (laughs) The Bible nowhere promises that Christians are going to have an easy life. So you need to consider it all joy when you experience trials and testing. The Bible does tell us what to do, though, when those trials come. And some Christians are going to go through a trial specifically planned by God for you. It's tailor-made for you. So what should they do? What should you do? God says you need to pray. I know. Sometimes that's hard. There's been several times in my life I just didn't feel like praying. And maybe you feel that way even right now. Sometimes when, when that suffering hits, you don't feel like praying. Sometimes my brain isn't even working properly. I, I, I don't know if I can get coherent words out to God. Yes, and if you're like that, remember you have the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, He utters groanings for you, Romans 8 says. But we can pray. Why? Because God is going to give you grace necessary to endure whatever He brings into your life. His grace is sufficient. His word is sufficient. You have all of these wonderful blessings, as James 1 says. It's, where is it coming from? Coming down from your Father. He has blessed. He's there. And so, my friends, here's the proposition. As we dig into the book of James in the months to come, Here's the proposition for you if you're taking notes. that God wants you to be a mature Christian. That's the entire point of the book of James. He doesn't want you to stay a baby sucking on milk. He wants you to grow up. Eat some spiritual meat. Know what that feels like and tastes like. And, and what does that mean to live like that? Well, well, we'll see what that's like in weeks to come. May God enable you to be mature. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of James. We're thankful for this great wisdom. Would you make us wise people so we would be pleasing to you, that we would be accurate representations of you while we live here on earth. Until then, may we be patient. May we endure. 
And may we look forward to Christ's coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.